Good morning, Gateway. Thank you, Mr. Delaney. My name is Corey Crandall. I've been coming to Gateway for about seven years with my wife, Miriam, and four kids. I'm one of seven trustees at this church, a role that I've been serving in for two years, and I'm really thankful to be here and be a part of this church. The last two weeks we've been in this series, The Way Forward. Matt talked about not understanding the current moment, but trusting that God is sovereign. This was exemplified when the Israelites were delivered from slavery in Egypt, only to become trapped between the Red Sea and the Egyptian army. God parted the sea, allowed the Israelites to walk through, and then destroyed the Egyptian army that was pursuing them. Adam talked about Nehemiah rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. He talked about how God gives us the tools necessary to do the work. He talked about how we need to open our eyes to the work in front of us, and that we must be ready to do this work and defend ourselves from the enemy. He closed by talking about celebration, and how we should be acknowledging and celebrating the work of the Lord in our lives. Matt and Adam's messages have been encouraging. I hope you have found comfort and strength in them as I have. The last several weeks have been difficult, and I've experienced a wide range of emotions. Scott Hatfield, our senior pastor, stepped down on March 5th. As a trustee, the burden has been heavy. Not too heavy, but close. Very close. I'm thankful for God's living word and the active work of the Holy Spirit. I've been reading through Exodus, Ezra, Nehemiah, Matthew, and Acts. The Lord has been speaking to me. And today, I want to share with you the words of Scripture that have been giving me comfort, hope, strength, and focus. My weary heart has been sustained by the joy of God's Word. These words, they're not just words on paper. It's not just words that dead men have written and are just keep on being printed. These words are alive. And when you find yourself in the middle of a storm, read these and let the work of the Holy Spirit Revive your heart. We're going to start in Matthew 28 today. Jesus has allowed himself to be crucified, hung on a cross to die, so that sinners like me and sinners like you might be washed clean and forgiven. In one of the greatest acts ever known, Jesus was resurrected. He conquered death and sin. After his resurrection, Jesus met with his disciples. One of his commands is recorded in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This command is extremely important to the Christian life. It's called the Great Commission, and all who call themselves Christians, everyone who desires to be a disciple, is called to this primary mission. Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth, and he says, go, therefore. Because of this, it is with the authority and strength of Jesus that we can continue this mission. There are three main parts here. One, make disciples of everyone. Two, baptize them in the name of the Trinity. And three, teach them what I have taught you. My purpose for starting here in Matthew 28 is to provide focus. 
one of the things that we've been doing as trustees is working on what's the most important thing for us to talk about now. As Matt Marble told me, first things first, one foot in front of the other. We have a list of stuff we need to discuss and share with you. We have focus and we're making progress. Similarly, as a church, first things first, one foot in front of the other. Adam talked about opening our eyes to the work before us. Open your door, open your eyes, and look at the work before you. What is your part in making disciples of the nations? What is your part in baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? What is your part in teaching them to observe what Jesus has commanded? As a prayer warrior, a defender, armed with sword, shield, and spear, are you praying for our leadership? Are you a builder, sword strapped at your side, but dedicated to building people? Are you a servant, sword in one hand, carrying loads in the other to support your brothers and sisters in their work? Because it takes all of these roles and many more to make our body function effectively with intention and purpose. How are you supporting the mission of Matthew 28? And you will need your sword because it is a dangerous mission. It's dangerous to walk across the street, build a relationship with your neighbor, and then share about your hope in Christ. It's dangerous to remember about how when you were a teenager and how hard that was. And so you go to Derek Wilson and you share your story and you say, hey, is there some student that needs me as a mentor? It's dangerous to dip your toes into the waters of adoption and foster care because pretty soon you'll be swimming laps in that pool like the spa family is. Focus on the primary mission. First things first, one foot in front of the other. This mission drives the story that we're going to follow today. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus tells his followers that the Holy Spirit will come upon them. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And then Jesus ascends to heaven. So this has been about 40 days since his death and resurrection. About 10 days later, they're in Jerusalem in the beginning of Acts 2. And the beginning of Acts 2 describes the Holy Spirit coming upon them. And they begin speaking in different languages and utterances in the Spirit. And they're praising God. And it's so crazy that this large crowd of people around them mock them saying, they are drunk with new wine. These people are crazy. They're just drunk. They have no idea what they're saying. Peter, an apostle, gets up. And in Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 40, he gives a rousing testimony for Jesus Christ. It's amazing. It's based on Old Testament scripture. He uses the stuff that he knows combined with the work of the Holy Spirit inside of him to deliver an awesome testimony. In verses 17 through 21, Peter quotes from the prophet Joel. In verses 25 through 28, Peter quotes from David from Psalm 16, 8 through 11. And he does this to set up these words in chapter 2, 29 through 36. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne... He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, 
And of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This should stir something inside of you. This Jesus that God raised up is both Lord and Christ. This is the God that we serve. I want you to listen what the crowds say in response to this. In in verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? I want to stop here and explain this cut to the heart business. In Hebrews 4, verses 12 through 13, it's written, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and tensions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. When Adam talked about carrying swords in Nehemiah, he was talking about physical swords. But earlier, when I referred to you about carrying swords for this dangerous mission, it's this Hebrews verse that I'm talking about. Now, some of you may not know how sharp a two-edged sword is. And so, in modern day, or should I say a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, this is what a sword would look like. This is Qui-Gon Jinn, Jedi Master from Star Wars Episode I, The Phantom Menace, using his sword to cut through a really strong, really thick door. Okay, The word of the Lord is like a lightsaber, able to cut through and melt away the walls that we build around our hearts and souls. This is the tool that God gives us. So coming back to verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Those walls that they had built up were pierced, were melted away. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And here's what Peter said to them. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. The promise is for all who are far off, especially if you are far off. If that's you today, if you're far off and you're cut to the heart, come up here at the end of the service and we'll talk. Jesus loves you and these people can be your brothers and sisters. Do you see Peter living out this great commission? It is his great commission and it is ours too. 3,000 were saved that day. 3,000. What would happen in Blue Springs, Grain Valley, Lee Summit if we had the courage to live this dangerous mission of the Great Commission? What if we spoke with the authority given to us by Jesus? 
Now, I'm not challenging you to bring 3,000 people here, but what if you brought just one? What if you brought just one? Let's continue to be about our great commission. Let's let it drive us and motivate us, just like it motivated Barnabas and Paul, whose journey we're going to learn a little more about. Now, I want to let you know, there are some different interpretations for the timeline of events in Acts, but the general time frame is good enough for the purposes of today's messages. But you should be aware that I'm not going to go into detail with respect to this timeline. There's a lot of really great stuff that I'm going to talk about today and I'm not going to be able to go into detail to because we're looking at an overarching story here. Sometime within two, within months to two years after Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2 that we just talked about, a disciple of Christ named Stephen was preaching the word of God. He was full of grace and power and was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Acts chapter 6 and 7 tell the story of how he was arrested and brought before the Jewish council. In chapter 7, Stephen gives an eloquent defense of Christ in front of the Jewish council and the high priest. They are cut to the heart, but they respond a little differently than the people in in, uh, chapter 2 do. They stone Stephen. And if you don't know what stoning is, it's you take a person, you put them in the middle of an area, you grab a bunch of rocks, and you throw rocks at this person until they die. That's stoning. A man named Saul was at this execution. In Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were scattered all throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house... He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This man named Saul had a childhood of the best upbringing, a student of the premier teachers, a Roman citizen, trained in the best Jewish schools, groomed for greatness within the Jewish community. He was zealous, passionate, confident, and willing to do almost anything for his religious convictions. Saul was dedicating to eradicating what he believed was the heresy of these Christ followers. But something unexpected happens to him. In Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. But Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. These are a little different than the letters that Nehemiah got from his king. These are letters, hey, I want to go in there. I need all the rights. I'm going to get rid of these people. Give me this authority. So that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly, a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Saul's life is transformed, cut to the heart by the word of the Lord. Saul is given a mission from God. And if you're wondering, it looks a lot like the mission in Matthew 28. Saul is baptized, and he immediately begins to go to synagogues, proclaiming Jesus 
is the Son of God. Now, we're going to jump down to verse 26, but three years have passed, okay? 20 verses, three years. Acts 9, 26. And when he, Saul, had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him for good reason. For they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Barnabas is described elsewhere in the Bible as a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And his nickname was Son of Encouragement. He was an early follower of Christ and was a man who could see the potential, the good in everybody. Barnabas is the kind of guy that would have seen good in Darth Vader. All right, hey, that's my second Star Wars reference, and now I'm done, okay? But he, he, he could see the good. There is good in these people. He used this character trait to vouch for Saul. He takes Saul before the disciples, who are all afraid of him. And Barnabas puts his reputation on the line for Saul. This is Barnabas the encourager. Saul and Barnabas will go on to do several years of ministry together. They become like brothers, forming a bond through ministry. And I want to highlight, I want to walk you through some of the examples. Acts chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found them, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Acts 25, verse 12. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other's name was Mark. Now this name, John Mark, this is one that you're going to want to remember. Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Now they were in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. For the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. These two, Barnabas and Saul, ordained together for the work of the Lord. Now at this point, Saul starts being called Paul. Don't ask me why, just remember, Saul, Paul, same guy. Barnabas and Paul preached together on Cyprus. Barnabas and, Barnabas and Paul preached together at Paphos, Perga, and Antioch in Poseidia. And it is about this time when John Mark leaves them. That's in Acts chapter 13, verse 13. He leaves Paul and Barnabas. The Bible doesn't say why, but this will become important later. Barnabas, Barnabas and Paul go on to preach at Iconium in Acts chapter 14. Paul and Barnabas preach at a place called Lystra. And while there, Paul heals a crippled man. Let's look at this. And when the crowds saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the, apostle, when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments 
and rushed out into the crowd crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. As great as these two men were, they were continually pointing people to God. We don't really follow men, nor do we put our strength or our hope in them. A psalmist in in chapter 73 of Psalms says, "Who, Who have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. As men and women, we fail. As both a person and a trustee, I will fail you at some point. It's guaranteed. I will let you down. But God will be your strength and your portion forever. We must remember to continually point people to Jesus. It can be really easy to inappropriately put someone on a pedestal of admiration and greatness and not be able to move on. I had my brother, I mean, I call him my brother, Derek Roar. He's a man who, who witnessed Christ to me for a long time. And in college, he made that ask of me. And he was an instrumental part in me knowing Jesus Christ. And if you've had that experience with someone, it can be easy to sort of elevate them or or put them on a pedestal. And had I not grown in faith and maturity, and had I left him on that pedestal, my faith, my spiritual walk would have been permanently hampered. And if you hold somebody up on a pedestal, a mere man, you are walking down that same path. We cannot elevate men over God. Now, there were Jews who believed Paul to be full of heresy. And they organized a mob at Lystra to kill him. Acts chapter 14, verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. So Paul is stoned, left for dead. Then he gets up and preaches with Barnabas the next day. The next day. He's stoned with rocks. This is nothing short of a miracle. I mean, what does that look like? That that next day, what does that look like? Hey, Barnabas. Hey, Paul. I didn't see you come back last night. Yeah, rough day. You look horrible. I was stoned. Huh, you don't look so bad for being stoned. Hey, want to go preach with me at Derby? Sure, let's go. I mean, what, what, what does that look like? How do, you, how do you get stoned one day, get, get up, and then the next day you go preach? I mean, what kind, of, what kind of encouragement does Barnabas give Paul to be able to continue on that path? And where is Paul's strength? Barnabas may be giving him encouragement, But Paul's strength is not in Barnabas. It's in God the Father. These guys are living a dangerous mission together to fulfill the Great Commission. Paul and Barnabas, they go back to Pisidia, Pamphylia, Perga, Italia, and Antioch, preaching the gospel. They go right back through hostile territory, risking their lives to proclaim Jesus. 
They're appointed to go to Jerusalem to help resolve a dispute. And then they're sent back to Antioch. They're spending a lot of time together with common purpose and mission. And then something changes. In Acts chapter 15, verses 36 through 41. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas, who wanted to take with them, John called Mark. Wanted to take with them, John called Mark. But Paul thought it would be best not to take thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia strengthening the churches. It can be heartbreaking to read. This powerhouse preaching team, giants of the faith, separate over a disagreement about who to bring with them on their next journey. Barnabas wants to bring John Mark with him. Remember, John Mark left Paul and Barnabas earlier. Paul doesn't want to bring him. Barnabas' ability to see the potential And to give another chance to John Mark ultimately causes separation. And it's a bit ironic that it was this very trait which Barnabas used to vouch for Paul before the disciples earlier. It was was this very trait. No, no, I can see what God is going to do in Paul. You guys should trust him. He is called to a mission. I want to read to you an excerpt from John Piper's July 1980 sermon about... Barnabas. And he asked this question, how shall we view their disagreement? But what does wisdom dictate in a choice like this? Barnabas seemed to focus on the need and potential of Mark. Paul seemed to focus on the demands and potential of the larger cause of the gospel and the honor of the mission. I don't think we should see this as all bad. It's the rancor and bitterness and resentment that are bad. But is it bad that one mission agency perceives wisdom in one strategy and another agency perceives wisdom in another strategy so that two mission agencies are formed? In fact, there are agencies today with extremely high standards for their candidates, more like Paul's. And there are agencies who will send almost anyone who wants to go. Is that all bad? The point here is simply this. Most of our life in ministry is made up of those kinds of decisions. The application of biblical principles to situations not explicitly dealt with in the Bible. And therefore, complete agreement in these areas will not happen in the body of Christ until we no longer see through a glass darkly. And I suggest we not too quickly assume that our different strategies for Christ are a bad thing. End of excerpt. Paul and Barnabas continued to depend on God. They moved forward peacefully, even though it meant parting ways. In matters of personal opinion and practical procedure, Paul and Barnabas differed. In matters of doctrine, they both saw the necessity of sharing the gospel with the world. 
They were united in what was truly important. Paul's ministry would continue to be successful. Barnabas' ministry would continue to be successful. They would both go about doing the Lord's work, fulfilling the Great Commission. John Mark would later write the Gospel of Mark. Paul would later write positively of Barnabas and Mark. The separation that we're going through at Gateway is not the end of the world. It's not the end of Gateway's ministry. It's not the end of Hatfield's ministry. It's not the end of my ministry. It's not the end of your ministry. God's not done here. He's not done at Gateway. He's not done with Hatfield, and he's not done with you. There is work in front of us. It's the rancor and bitterness and resentment that will allow the enemy a foothold to try and steal our hope. But we must secure our hope by trusting in God. Our battle is not with flesh and blood. It is not with each other, but with spiritual forces of evil. We will have to armor up according to Ephesians 6, which Scott Sterling is going to be teaching about next week. I've been asked, is there hope for the future? Unequivocally, yes. Yes, Romans 5, 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope, the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. I believe in a God who spoke the universe into being, who parted the Red Sea for his people, who sent his son Jesus to live among us. I believe in this Jesus who turned water to wine, healed the sick, gave blind men sight, told paralytics to walk, said to a dead man, awake, and he woke. I believe in this Jesus, who in the middle of the sea of a raging storm said to the howling wind and the roaring sea, be still, and it was, it stopped. I believe in this Jesus, who walked on water, gave hope to the hopeless, and offered his body as a living sacrifice for the atonement of our sins. I believe in the Holy Spirit given to us by Jesus, who empowers a wretch of a man like me to be able to stand here and proclaim the name of Jesus to you and to the world. This is the Jesus and the God and the Holy Spirit that I believe in. I believe in a God that's bigger than me, that's bigger than you, that's bigger than our church and that's bigger than any of our problems. So yes, I have a hope for the future. Unequivocally, yes. And it's in this hope and in the spirit of this message that I'm going to ask Scott and Sarah to come up front so that we can pray for them as they continue on this next leg of their journey so that we can send them off with a blessing so that their ministry might be great. Come on, trustees. So that their so that their ministry might be great in this next place that they go to. God is not done with Scott Hatfield. Scott and Sarah are children of God. 
And they are going to be empowered and the Holy Spirit is going to work through them and they are going to have great impact somewhere. It has been a pleasure and an honor to serve, to walk through this time that they have been here. I am thankful for them and for the impact that they've had on me and this church. And now there is a separation and it isn't all that bad. There is hope for the future. Gateway will continue to be blessed by God as we follow him and seek after him. Scott Hatfield and Sarah Hatfield and their kids will continue to be blessed and God will give them a mission and a passion and they will follow it. And it is in that spirit that I want to pray for them and send them off.